Hello, and welcome to this podcast of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this podcast, we will summarize selected articles from the January 2010 issue. A table of contents and access to full articles is available on the JPGN website at jpgn.org or on the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. This issue is headlined by an invited review by Kameth, Schwartz, and Hachik, entitled Allergial Syndrome and Liver Transplantation. In this review, the authors draw upon the literature and their own experience to discuss the topic of liver transplantation in patients with allergial syndrome, a multi-system disorder in which progressive cholestatic liver disease and pruritus may warrant consideration for liver transplantation. The authors point out that the variable and unpredictable progression of liver disease in this disorder and the associated renal and cardiac disease raise critical management issues about whether transplant will eventually be required, whether it can be tolerated, and at what point transplant assessment should occur. After determining that the patient's liver disease has or will progress to a point at which liver transplantation should be considered, the authors suggest that the next critical part of the pre-transplant assessment is evaluation of cardiac and renal status. They suggest that cardiac performance should be tested preoperatively by dynamic stress tests that mimic the major hemodynamic changes which occur during liver transplantation. The author's review and experience indicate that many aspects of the syndrome, including cholestasis, pruritus, and hypercholesterolemia improve post-transplant, but that short stature is rarely significantly improved. They report that one- and five-year patient and graft survivals are comparable to other elective indications for liver transplant, but that the effects of long-term immunosuppression on the evolution of other components of the syndrome, especially cardiovascular, bone, and renal disease, remain largely unknown. The first original gastroenterology article is entitled Intestinal Adaptation Following Massive Ileocecal Resection in 20-Day-Old Weanling Rats by Yang and Koch. Objectives. Most animal models used to study adaptation to short bowel syndrome use adult animals in whom the proximal small bowel is resected with a subsequent jejunoileal anastomosis. These models have unclear clinical relevance to human infantile short bowel syndrome, which is usually a result of surgical resection of the ileum, plus or minus the ileocecal valve, and part or all of the colon in infants with necrotizing enterocolitis. The author's aim was to develop a more appropriate short bowel syndrome model using weanling rats. Materials and methods. 20-day-old weanling rats were divided into three groups, ileocecal resection, 14 rats, sham operation, 9 rats, and unoperated controls, 5 rats. All animals were fed a liquid diet ad libitum for 7 days after surgery or simply for 7 days prior to study in the controls. Body weight, food intake, and stool changes were recorded daily. The rats were then euthanized 
and intestinal lengths and weights recorded. Intestine samples from the distal jejunum and proximal colon were collected for histology. Mucosal samples from the middle and distal jejunum and from the colon were collected for measurements of mucosal weight, DNA, RNA, and protein content. Maltase activity was determined in the small intestinal samples. Results. 85% of the rats survived the ileocecal resection with subsequent development of diarrhea, hyperphagia, and poor growth. Adaptive responses to resection compared with sham-operated animals included increased intestinal and mucosal weight, DNA, RNA, and protein content, increased maltase activity, increased villus thickness in the distal jejunum, and increased mucosal thickness in the colon. These preliminary studies indicate that the intestinal resection is possible in weanling rats and that they may be useful as models of human infantile short bowel syndrome. The next original article is entitled Early Onset Crohn Disease is Associated with Male Sex and a Polymorphism in the IL-6 Promoter by Sajiv, Friedgut, Carbon, Weiss, Shaul, Shamir, Bujanover, Reif, Boaz, Shani, Levine, and Leshinsky-Silver. Ames. Pediatric Crohn disease is characterized by a male predominance, while adult-onset Crohn disease has a female predominance. It has been postulated that this sex-related difference in disease onset may be genetically determined or due to an effect of estrogen. Interleukin-6, or IL-6, modulates the T-helper-17 pathway, and the IL-6 promoter is modulated by estrogen, possibly representing the link between genetically determined inflammation and estrogen. The aim of this study was to investigate whether differences in IL-6 promoter genotype could explain the male sex predominance in early-onset Crohn disease. Patients and Methods The authors genotyped the IL-6-174 polymorphic site in 333 patients with Crohn's disease, of whom 162 had disease onset at age 18 years or younger. 100 adults served as controls. Genotype, sex, and age of onset were compared. Males with IL-6-174 GG phenotype, the wild-type allele, were at increased risk for a younger age of onset compared to male or GC or CC genotype, that is, one or two alleles with a G to C mutation. The hazard ratio was 1.49 with a p-value of 0.02 and 95% confidence interval of 1.07 to 2.09. Females with the GG genotype were not found to have an increased risk for younger age of onset compared with females with the G to C genotype. Here the hazard ratio was 1.01 with a p-value of 0.96. The authors concluded 
that males with IL-6-174-GG genotype are prone to develop Crohn disease at a younger age than males with the IL-6-174-G to C mutation genotypes. The authors suggest that age of onset may be modified by the IL-6-174-GG genotype and that this modification is sex-dependent, possibly due to increased transcription of IL-6, an effect that may be repressed by estrogen in females. The next article is entitled Rising Incidence of Inflammatory Bowel Disease Among Children, a 12-Year Study, by Malati, Fan, Opakun, Thibodeau, and Ferry. The objective of this study was to evaluate the prevalent observation that the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease is increasing in the pediatric population. The authors performed a retrospective study of a cohort of children diagnosed between 1991 and 2002 with inflammatory bowel disease who were registered in the IBD Center of the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. The diagnosis of IBD was based on clinical, radiologic, endoscopic, and histologic examination. Results. 272 children were eligible for the analysis, 56% with Crohn disease, 22% with ulcerative colitis, and 22% with indeterminate colitis. The male-to-female ratio was 1.2 to 1 in Crohn disease but 0.6 to 1 in ulcerative colitis. The male-to-female ratio was 0.8 to 1 in indeterminate colitis. From 1991 to 2002, the incidence rate of inflammatory bowel disease doubled from 1.1 per 100,000 per year, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.85 to 1.36, to 2.4 per 100,000 per year, with a 95% confidence interval of 2.10 to 2.77. The trend towards increased incidence was valid for Crohn disease, but not for ulcerative colitis. Whites had higher incidence rates of inflammatory bowel disease than African Americans or Hispanics, 4.15 per 100,000 per year for whites, 1.83 per 100,000 per year for African Americans, and 0.61 per 100,000 per year for Hispanics. African Americans were predominantly diagnosed with Crohn disease. Conclusions. These results demonstrate a rising incidence of inflammatory bowel disease among children, with evidence of more change in the incidence of Crohn disease than ulcerative colitis. The last GI original article to be reviewed is entitled Conceptualization and Treatment of Chronic Abdominal Pain in Pediatric Gastroenterology Practice by Sherman, Hunter, and Friesen. An editorial by Dr. Joel Roche accompanies this article. The aim of this study was to examine how children with abdominal pain are currently viewed, assessed, and treated by pediatric gastroenterologists across North America, as well as how perspectives have changed since the release of the Rome Criteria for Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders approximately 15 years ago. 
Patience and Methods. 174 members of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition completed a pediatric gastroenterology practice survey designed by the authors in 2006. The responses were examined for practice patterns, knowledge of and use of the Rome criteria. The responses were compared with historical data from 151 North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition members who completed a similar survey in 1992. Results there were few changes in the evaluation, treatment, or outcome for children with abdominal pain in the last 15 years. Knowledge of the Rome criteria was common, but their use in practice was not. Several specific problems with the criteria were identified. A mismatch appeared between physicians' belief that psychological factors are important in the creation and maintenance of pediatric abdominal pain and their integration of these factors into their standard evaluation and treatment. Finally, controversy emerged regarding both the term functional and the importance of histologic inflammation in the pathophysiology of pediatric abdominal pain. The authors concluded that the dissemination of the Rome criteria for the past 15 years has not substantially changed evaluation or treatment practices for children with abdominal pain. Many areas of inconsistency and controversy remain. More focused research is needed to better understand this common condition and to establish an effective treatment program that can be disseminated to general and subspecialty practitioners of pediatrics. The first hepatology original article is entitled Variable Clinical Spectrum of the most common inborn error of bile acid metabolism, 3-beta-hydroxy, delta-5-C27 steroid dehydrogenase deficiency, by Subramaniam, Clayton, Portman, Miele Vergani, and Hachik. An editorial by Dr. Ronald Sokol accompanies this article. The authors studied the clinical features of children with 3-beta-hydroxy delta-5-C27 steroid dehydrogenase deficiency, or 3-beta-HSDH, presenting to King's College and Great Ormond Street Hospitals between 1989 and 2005. The diagnosis was made biochemically by detection of sulfated dihydroxy and trihydroxycholinoic acids in urine by fast atom bombardment mass spectrometry or electrospray ionization tandem mass spectrophotometry and a plasma bile acid profile showing absent or low cholic and kinodeoxycholic acid and high concentrations of 3-beta 7-alpha dihydroxy 5-cholinoic acid and 3-beta 7-alpha-12-alpha-trihydroxy-5-cholinoic acid. Results. 18 children, 12 male, with 3-beta-HSDH deficiency were diagnosed at a median age of 1.35 years with a range of 8 weeks to 11 years. The presenting features included neonatal cholestasis in 11, rickets in 8, 
one of whom also had hypocalcemic tetany, seizures, and normal liver biochemistry. Hepanomegaly in 7, pruritus in 3, and steatorrhea with failure to thrive in 3. Ten children had low serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels, and of these, eight also had low vitamin E and six had low vitamin A serum levels. Liver histology showed giant cell change and hepatocyte disarray in all, with added features of cholestasis in 11, bridging fibrosis in 6, micronodular cirrhosis in 1, fatty change in 1, and active lobular and portal inflammation in 1. Five patients were treated with both cholic and kenodeoxycholic acid, 7 milligrams per kilogram per day of each. Seven were treated with kenodeoxycholic acid only, 7 to 18 milligrams per kilogram per day, and one was treated with cholic acid only, 8 milligrams per kilogram per day. Repeated liver biopsies in four patients, six months after starting replacement therapy, showed improved histologic changes in all four. Three children died untreated before five years of age. After a mean follow-up of 5.5 years, with a range from 1.1 to 17 years, 12 of the 13 treated children had no clinical signs of liver disease or of fat-soluble vitamin deficiency. Conclusions Early replacement bile acid therapy of 3-beta-HSDH deficiency leads to clinical and biochemical control and in the medium-term follow-up of this study, appeared to prevent chronic liver disease and bone disease. The next original hepatology article is entitled Impact of Virtual Imaging Procedures on Treatment Strategies in Children with Hepatic Vascular Malformations by Fuchs, Warman, Sieverding, Haber, Schaefer, Seitz, Hofbeck, Burkane, and Pietgen. Since virtual imaging procedures have rarely been analyzed in pediatric populations, the authors evaluated the role of CT-based virtual surgery in planning in pediatric patients with hepatic vascular malformations. Methods. The authors report on 12 children with complex hepatic vascular malformations. All of the children had multi-slice CT scans with contrast medium followed by virtual three-dimension reconstructions using the software assistance MEVIS Liver Analyzer and MEVIS Liver Explorer. The impact on treatment planning and the correspondence to clinical findings found at surgery was assessed. This article is accompanied by some outstanding color images. Results. The most accurate virtual data were obtained in cases of intrahepatic porticaval shunt and persistent ductus venosus. Here, virtual data revealed congenital vascular conditions which were not always seen using standard imaging diagnostics. In some patients with portal vein thrombosis, virtual imaging was important in determining the feasibility of different shunt procedures. However, in others with portal vein thrombosis, and in those with diffuse hepatic hemangiomata, virtual methods were not as accurate as standard diagnostic procedures. Conclusions. Virtual imaging had an important impact 
on treatment strategies and outcome in children with some hepatic vascular malformations. Virtual imaging should be considered as part of standard diagnostic testing in selected cases of hepatic vascular malformation. The final original article is a nutrition article entitled Infant Formula Supplementation with Long-Chain Polyunsaturated Fatty Acids Has No Effect on Bailey Developmental Scores at 18 Months of Age, an IPD meta-analysis of four large clinical trials by Berlin, Hatters-Algra, Kennedy, Futrell, Singhal, Rosenfeld, Lucas, Baustra, Koletsko, and von Kreis. The objective of this study was to determine whether supplementation of formula with long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, LC-PUFA, affects neurodevelopment at 18 months of age in term and preterm infants. The authors used an individual patient data, or IPD, meta-analysis. Materials and methods. Data from 870 children entered in four large randomized clinical trials of formula with and without LC-PUFA supplements were used to assess the effect of LC-PUFA, to adjust for potential confounders, and to perform subgroup analysis by stage of prematurity, LC-PUFA source, and LC-PUFA dosage. Any additional clinical trials examining the effect of LC-PUFA supplementation on Bailey scales of infant development at 18 months were regarded as relevant. Two relevant studies were identified by Medline, but were not available to the authors. An IPD meta-analysis was performed with subgroup analyses on patients with preterm delivery, patients with birth weight less than 1,500 grams, patients receiving high-dose supplementation with docosa hexanoic acid and arachidonic acid, and by specific source of LC-PUFA. The sample size of 870 children was sufficient to detect clinically relevant differences in Bailey scores, even in the smaller subgroups. Results. There were no significant differences in mental or psychomotor developmental indices between LC-PUFA-supplemented and control groups for all children or in subgroups. This finding was confirmed even after adjustment for possible confounders, sex, gestational age, birth weight, maternal age, and maternal smoking. The adjusted mean difference was minus 0.8 for the mental developmental index with 95% confidence interval of minus 2.8 to plus 1.2, and was minus 1.0 for the psychomotor developmental index, with 95% confidence interval of minus 2.7 to plus 0.7. Conclusions. These data, extracted from a large sample size, provide substantial evidence that LC-PUFA supplementation of infant formula does not have a clinically meaningful effect on neurodevelopment as assessed by Bailey scores at 18 months of age. Even the inclusion of studies unavailable to the authors would probably not have led to differing conclusions except possibly among very low birth weight infants. This concludes the podcast of the January 2010 issue of JPGN. 
Other articles in this issue include a report from the Espagan Cystic Fibrosis Working Group on the European Multicenter Experience with Incidents, Characteristics, and Treatment of Distal Intestinal Obstruction Syndrome. Several articles on celiac disease regarding screening and adolescent dietary compliance. A review of therapeutic radiologic intervention in Bud-Chiari syndrome in children. A a commentary and recommendations from the ESPGAN on uh, enteral nutrition supplements for preterm infants. And an article on the introduction of complementary feedings as practiced in five European countries. The full contents of this issue can be accessed at jpgn.org or through the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. The editors of JPGN are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Mm-hmm.